If you're an elite marathoner, maybe there's something a bit more to 180. If you're not an elite marathoner, hands up. I am not an elite marathoner. Dizwins Radio, episode 732. Starts in three, two, Welcome back to Diz Runs Radio, where I talk with runners from all corners of the running world about running, life, and everything in between. I'm your host, Denny Cray, and it's just about time to head out the door for an easy run and a great conversation. So if you're ready, then I'm ready. Let's get started. Well, 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 here we are, end of another month, and that, uh, you know, if you've been listening for a minute, you know what that means. It is time for a little uh, Q&A episode today. You ask, I answer, taking on, uh, I don't know what we got, 17, 18, something like that, 16, somewhere in that range, uh, taking on some questions from y'all this month, trying to, to sh- drop a little wisdom, shed a little knowledge on you, um, hopefully not steer you in the wrong direction. That's that's certainly the uh, the goal. And, uh, you know, as, as I say every month, if you want to get your questions answered, the best way to do that is head over to the Facebook group. Come in and join our little uh, corner of uh, the, of the Facebook at uh, disruns.com slash Facebook. Or if you're on Facebook or the next time you're scrolling through Facebook, just go ahead and type in uh, disruns into the search bar and come join join the group. Not, not you know, you can like the page. That's cool. Um, but come join our, our, little, uh, our little group here. Lots of fun, a little bit of trolling, lots of lots of support though. Uh, pretty pretty awesome group. The goal is to become the best group, the best running group on Facebook. I don't know if we're there yet or not. Who knows? I don't know if it's if, if we'll ever truly be there, but we're always going to aspire to that. And uh, we always have room for more more runners, no matter where you are on the spectrum, as far as distance, as far as experience, as far as pace, whatever the case might be. If you're a runner, and I'm assuming that you probably are, since you're listening to this show that's all about running. Um, we'd love to have you join us. So come on down. And then somewhere in the middle of each month, I put out a post that says, Hey, what are your questions this month? Y'all put your questions into the comments. And here we are. I try to give you, like I said, give you some answers, give you some insight, give you a little, a little something to help you get on the way. Uh, and the questions, you know, sometimes they're, they're mostly serious running related questions. Sometimes they're a bit more, uh, loosey goosey, you know, fun stuff. Um, you know, and usually there's a nice little mix and that's what we've got here today. So without any further ado, let's just dive right in. Cause we got a bunch of questions and I'm going to try not to make this, you know, a, a, an hour plus long episode, but y'all know how I operate. Get the, get the yap flapping. And, uh, sometimes it's hard to, to shut it down, but, uh, we'll try to keep things sweet and tight and concise today. Uh, you'd be the judge whenever we wrap this thing up as to whether or not that was successful. So today, first question comes from my man, Aaron. He says, uh, should I untie my shoes after every run? I have always found a comfy tie and leave them there. Just slip them on and off for each run. However, someone told me that it's bad for running shoes because it wears down the heel support. Any truth to that? Yes, Aaron, there is truth to that. Um, I'll be honest. When I was when I was reading through these questions before I started recording, I started getting a little snarky with this one. Kind of like, you know, seriously, how how lazy are you that you can't take 15 seconds per shoe? So 30 seconds to untie your shoes after a run, 30 seconds to tie them up before a run. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's uh, 
Whew, that's that's a bit much for me, but I get it. I get the convenience slip them on, slip them off. And Aaron, I know that you're a little bit of a do some do some triathloning as well. And in the triathlon world, that's pretty common, you know. Just slip your shoes on, save yourself save yourself those seconds in the transition areas. So I get it from that perspective. But as far as just everyday training and everyday, you, you know, your your shoes, yeah. If you, if you're if you're mangling the heel area of your shoe to get your foot in and out, um, you know that that rigidity, that structure of the heel cup itself is there for a reason. It helps to kind of lock your foot in place, keep your, your heel from sliding around. Um, and if you're, if you're mashing that down or, or extending it out to try to slide your foot in and out, um, you, you're definitely, you know, decreasing the integrity of the shoe. You're more likely to have your foot slide around, uh, more likely to have some blisters, you know, possibly something digging into the back of your heel from the shoe because that, that, that rigid structure has been bent forward. So now it's pressing into your Achilles instead of uh, coming up behind it. So yeah, I mean, you know, it, are you going to like dramatically shorten the lifespan of your shoes by slipping them on and off? Nah, probably not. But are they going to be functioning as well? If you, if you, if you have to mash the heel all up and, and down to, to get your shoe in and out? I mean, no, they're not going to, they're not, they're not going to be like, like they were designed. Um, and then the, on the other end of the spectrum, so that's if you're tying them fairly tight and still trying to slip in and out other end of the spectrum, if you're keeping them fairly loose, well, now you've got your foot sliding around in your shoe, so now you are asking for, you know, blister issues. You're asking for rubbing and friction and, and black toenails and all those types of things. Versus if you, you know, spend the 15 seconds, except for when you're in transition of a triathlon, to actually, you know, untie your shoes, put your foot in, tie the shoe back up. Now you can get the shoe nice and, and uh, you know, snug around your foot, not too tight, but not too loose. It stays in place. It protects your foot. Um... I don't know. I mean, if, if it works for you, I guess, you know, rock on, but I mean, come on, man, you know, tie, tie and untie your shoes. It makes them, it makes them fit better. Uh, keeps them, you know, makes it more like one with your foot instead of a foot inside of a shoe, which for me, that's what I want. I want my shoes to feel like a glove when I put them on. And that means I want them nice and snug with a, with a fresh tie every time I wear them. But you know, I mean, I, I don't know that you're, you're dramatically shortening down your, the life of your, of your shoe by not tying them, but I mean, you're definitely impacting the integrity of the heel cup and that can cause problems. So I say tie your shoe, but you know, at the end of the day, you do you boo. And if it, if it works for you, whatever works for you, I guess, you know, find, find that comfy tie. That's, that's loose enough, but not too loose. I don't know that that exists. I don't know that I've ever experienced that. If you've got it, rock on. Uh, next question comes from Nicole it says, I do a lot of training runs on trails. Should I invest in trail shoes or is running in my regular, you know, running shoes? Is that okay? Uh, honestly, Nicole, it depends on the trail itself. Is it a real technical trail with, with lots of, you know, like loose gravel and roots and, um, brush and, sh and, and, you know, kind of bushwhacking more than it is like a nice groomed, uh, clean trail. Uh, is there lots of mud, especially if it, if it rains a little bit, does it get pretty nasty? If, if you're answering yes to those questions, then trail shoes might be a good choice because they're going to provide extra stability, extra traction, especially when the, the footing is a little bit, uh, a little sketchy. If your trails are mostly kind of like what the, what a lot of the trails are that we have down here, where it's kind of, you know, gr groomed, groomed ish grass, where it's, it's, you know, it's, it's wide. It's almost kind of like, uh, um, running on like two tracks or something like that. Then you really don't need trail shoes. I mean, there's, there's nothing super special about trail shoes. It's kind of like, you know, if you, if you look at tires, you know, you have road tires versus you have like kind of off-roading tires for like a Jeep or something like that. You know, you can, you can use road tires on a lot of off-road areas, but you get into some real gnarly mud or some gnarly loose gravel, things like that. It's nice to have that extra grip 
of a, of a more off-roading type of tire. You know, same thing, same thing with your running shoes. You get somewhere a little bit gnarly, a little bit technical. It's nice to have a little extra cushion under your feet, a little extra grip on, on, especially on lots of downhills, things like that. But if your trails are pretty tame that you're running on, then you really don't need trail shoes. You know, they can be nice. They can, you know, there's, there's some minor perks to them for, for pretty tame trails, but you don't necessarily need to, if you've got running shoes that work for you on the trails, you feel safe. You feel, you feel stable rock on sister. That's, that's, you're good enough. You're, you're good enough. Unless of course you're looking for an excuse to buy more running shoes, in which case, Hey, you absolutely need some new trail shoes to run on those trails. So I hope that helps Nicole and uh, best of luck with your training. Uh, next question comes, another shoe question comes from a man, uh, Turi, uh, says, uh, it's recommended to change shoes between 300 and 500 miles. What if that falls in between, you know, it, what if that falls in between like long races? Do you change them between race, you know, in, in a, um, I think I'm reading this question, like in between, um, like in the build up to a race in a training cycle, or do you try to just keep them, hold on to them until you finish that training cycle and then break in a new pair of shoes? So my first pushback on your question, Turi, is, uh, who says, who, who is the, uh, the, the prevailing decider that 300 to 500 miles is, is it. And once you get to 501 miles, you're done. The shoes do not work anymore. Um, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. I have shoes that I've worn for 700 plus miles, pushing 800 miles. Um, and then, you know, it starts to get to the point where it's time to retire. I'm not because the shoes are falling apart, but because there's literally no tread left on the bottom of the shoe. So they start to become a little bit of a slip, slipping hazard anytime it gets wet out there. Um, but the shoes are still just fine. You know, it's just that they literally ran out of tread. That said, I've had shoes that, you know, after 300 or 400 miles, it's, it's time to give them up. So it, it you know, my first pushback is that there's no magical distance for all shoes. Each shoe is going to have its own distance, and each each person, each each wearer of said shoe, based on how you run, form, all those types of factors. You know, some shoes you might get, you know, I might get 600 miles with, and you might get 400 miles with, or vice versa. You might get 600, I might get 400. So whenever it's time to replace the shoes, um, that's the time to replace the shoes. Not not because of some arbitrary running shoe store said or running shoe brand said that it needs to be between 300 and 500 miles or something like that. You'll know when it's time because you'll start to feel it a little bit more. You'll start to be a little bit achier after some runs, and you're like, "Gosh, why am I? Why are my knees sore? Why? Why do? Why do my calves hurt more so after just a, a few mile easy run than they normally do?" And you start to look at your shoes and go, "Oh yeah, wait a minute, maybe it's time to get some new shoes." So that's when it's time to get new shoes. Now, wh- how does that? You know, how do, does the, does it factor? Do you do you adjust and adapt if it if it happens to fall at a certain point in a training cycle where you're kind of getting close to race day and you don't you know you don't want to break in some new shoes for the race? A couple of thoughts. One. Be, be a little bit more forward thinking. So if, you, if you're you know training for a marathon and the marathon is still a couple months out and you're going, you know what? I'm starting to get to that point where maybe these shoes are going to need to be replaced. You kind of have, if you can do that and give yourself, you know, maybe still 70, 80, 100 miles left in your shoes before they're probably going to need to be replaced. So maybe you're in that, that window or maybe you've had shoes like this before. You know about how long they last. Well, maybe it's now is a good time to grab another pair of shoes and start rotating them in. And then you have two options come race day. Either the new shoes are all broken in. They feel really good. Wear them on race day, or you haven't driven the old shoes into the ground yet because you've been alternating through mixing up with the new pair of shoes. And so instead of the old shoes running out two weeks before your marathon, they've still got plenty of life to get you through the, through the marathon or through the half marathon, whatever your race might be. And then probably you can still wear them even a little bit longer past that because you haven't been taxing those shoes quite as much. Um, so that's, that's one option. Another option, if if the current 
make and model of your shoes are still available, you can just grab another pair of those same shoes. Now, if, if they if there's been an update, you never know. Sometimes that uh, messes with the formula and the shoes don't fit quite the same as they used to. But if you can get the same make and model, same version of the shoes, you can get those and probably just pretty much out with the old, in with the new, and not really need any time to break them in at all. Most running shoes these days don't require a whole lot of break-in period. Maybe oh, an easy run or two kind of helps to just make them feel feel like they, you know, kind of almost imprint your the sole of your foot onto the sole of the shoe, so they just kind of fit you just right. But you don't need a huge period of breaking in. And, and for me, honestly, these days, I, I almost like kind of ha- make a game out of how far can I wear new shoes the first time. So you know, I, I almost always out of a box try to wear the shoes at least 15 miles, sometimes longer. A lot of times it's because I'm I'm doing a, a shoe review uh, or I'm planning to do shoe review. So it's nice to know, hey, do I need to break these shoes in or not? Can I at least wear them for a half marathon, if not even a marathon, if not even an ultra? I've done that before. New shoes, first time running in them at an ultra. Um, so you know, and and really not had any issues. So you know, at least, at least with, with the shoes that I wear, which y'all probably know they're the, they're ultras. Um, I, I rarely worry about breaking them in. If that makes you feel more comfortable though, try to get a, a new pair several weeks before your race. That way you can wear them for a few times, wear them for a couple of long runs, wear them for a couple of easy runs, short runs, whatever, get them broken in. But you know, it's not like you just get to a point where all of a sudden today, the shoes are, are worn out. You know, if you start to notice that, that, that the tread's wearing pretty thin, uh, maybe the, the cushioning on the inside around the ankle is starting to get pretty worn, that's a pretty good sign that, hey, you're probably going to need some new shoes, so get a pair now, start breaking them in if that's what you need to feel like you need to do, or, or at least, you know, try them out and make sure that your, your foot feels comfortable in them, and then just kind of ease them in no matter where you are in the training cycle or in, a, in between training cycles, wherever, just like you would normally break in a new pair of shoes at that point. So hope all that makes sense, Turi, but yeah, don't, don't worry too much about certain mileage or, or whatever when it's time get new shoes. And if you have, I, I like to say, you know, for me, and again, I, I understand that I get some, some shoes for working with ultra. I get some shoes to review. So I, I might have, I, I don't spend much on, I haven't bought shoes for myself in a few years. So I, I get that I'm a little bit lucky on that front, a lot lucky on that front, but I, I like to have two or three pairs of shoes going at the same time. So I can just kind of rotate through them. And so i never really have a whole issue with brand new shoes because I'm always kind of rotating a new pair of shoes in here and here and there find one I like, stick with that a little bit more, but mix it up a little bit. And then, you know, I'm always kind of good. I'm never in a, in a bind of like, oh my gosh, these shoes are shot. And what am I going to do? Like, you know, so if you have a couple pairs of shoes that you can always kind of rotate through, then, you know, uh, you know, start, start with a new pair. And then when that pair gets a couple hundred miles in, start with another new pair, keep rotating them through, add another, and, and you're kind of always good to go on that front. If hopefully all that makes sense, but thanks for the question, Turi. And I hope that you're training for, uh, training for Chicago. I know is, uh, is already underway. Hope it's going, continues to go smoothly for you. Uh, Peter comes in with a question. How important is that 180 beats per uh, steps per minute cadence? Not very, not very in my book, in my opinion. And if you remember back, I believe it was episode 704. I only know that because I checked it earlier. Ha ha. Starting to learn starting to figure out that if I'm going to reference back to a podcast, it's not a bad idea to check the number beforehand, right? So I don't have to say, I don't know, whatever that number was. But when Mike Swinger was on the show recently, it was in uh, in March of this year, 2019. It was his second appearance on the show. Uh, like I said, I'm pretty sure episode 704, there's a link in the show notes today, but uh, you can just go dizruns.com slash 704. And we, we talked about it, uh, not at super long length, but we spent five or 10 minutes talking about this whole 180 beats per minute or steps per minute uh, myth that that's like this, this magical golden ticket, 
number. Um, in case you're not sure, here's how the 180 steps per minute thing came about. So I think it was Jack Daniels, but it was somebody back, you know, several years ago, several decades ago, watching elite marathoners. So there's your first thing. If you're an elite marathoner, maybe there's something a bit more to 180. If you're not an elite marathoner, hands up. I am not an elite marathoner already. Maybe there's a little bit of something to, to consider there, but watching elite marathoners, the best ones taking the, you know, counting their steps per minute, how many strides they take per minute, averaging them together came up with 180. If you know anything about math, and I'm trusting that all of us that are listening to this are adults enough that we know the basics of math and basics of averages. When you have an average, that means that some people were above that. Some people were below that. Average them together, we came up with 180. So what that means is that when when this formula or this idea came to pass that 180 steps per minute is the ideal, what that really meant, that and I don't know that this was 100%, but what that could have meant is that literally none of the runners were running at 180 steps per minute. It means that some of them are running at 182, 185, 187. Some of them are running at 179, 176, 174. Average them all together though, and we came up with 180. So about 180, if you're going hard for, for distance, whether that's 10K, half marathon, marathon, that's a, as, being in that ballpark is probably where you're going to end up being. If you're at 176, does that mean that you fell short? Or if you were at 187, did you go too fat? No, no, that's just what works for you. Because depending on your body type, how long your legs are, uh, all those, there's a whole host of factors, how tight your, your hip flexors are and your glutes and things like that, how well engaged you're able to fire up your glutes. That's all going to factor into how well your legs going to be able to swing. Okay. So if you're, if you're close, great, but that's only when you're pushing at a pretty heavy intensity for a longer duration. If you're doing a nice, easy run, man, to, to hit 180 steps per minute at a nice, easy conversational pace, you, you've got to be like so far shortening up your stride that it almost seems ridiculous. Almost seems ridiculous. So instead of focusing more on, on, on the cadence all the time, make sure your form's good. Make sure you're landing with your foot underneath you instead of stepping out in front of you. Make sure that you're taking you know good good strides, but not overstriding, and you're going to be fine. And if it's 150 for an easy run or 160, hey, whatever, that's fine. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 180 is an average. It's a one size fits all kind of guideline rule of thumb. If it works for you, great. But if you're if you're a little bit above or below, oh, for the love, Peter, do not freak. And everybody else, please don't freak out about 180. Some people buy into it like it's like it's the freaking gospel. And it's it's just a rule of thumb. Just a rule of thumb. Your mileage is definitely going to vary on steps per minute based on a whole host of factors that are way more important and way way better things to consider and worry about than like if you're taking one, 170 steps, 190 steps, or whatever. Be in the ballpark. Good enough is good enough. Next question comes from Sherry says, uh, for masters runners training for a marathon, how do you best get the weekly training miles in? She says, I'm almost 66, but still working full time. And, uh, you know, job starts at seven or eight in the morning, work an eight or nine hour day, struggling with running more days and less miles per week versus the idea of doing fewer days per week, but getting more miles in each day. What are your thoughts? P.S. I also work with a personal trainer two times a week for strength training. So that's awesome, Sherry, that you're getting the strength training in. That's fantastic. Um, honestly, when it comes to getting the miles in per week, the, the, the biggest thing, and, and this isn't just for masters runners, this is for everybody. You know, this is, this is universal, uh, struggle that we all have, you know, if, if you're, and I think most of us are, 
We have jobs, we have families, we have other responsibilities on top of trying to get in our training for our races. So how do you make it all, all fit? You know, there, there is no perfect way, Sherry, you got to do what you got to do. So if that means that you're, you know, running six times a week, but most of those runs, except for maybe your long run are all kind of shorter, you know, a handful of miles to get some, some miles in each day. Cause that's what works for your schedule. Great. If you have the flexibility in your schedule or if you make it work where it's like, Hey, you know, I can, I can, you know, two days a week, three days a week, I can get in a, a, a decent number of miles, but the other days I just can't make it work. Also great. You know, there's not one that's necessarily better than the other. It's it, what works for you. What works for you, not only for your schedule, as far as getting the miles in, but also for your body, as far as recovery, do you need more days off per week? And that, again, it doesn't necessarily matter for being master's runner or not. It just matters for, for your body, for how you feel, you know, do, do you need to have more off days? Do you need to have more cross training days to get the heart rate up, but to save the pounding? Hey, you got to do what you got to do. You know, another option might be doing some doubles. Can you get a few miles in the morning, a few miles in the, in the evening or a few miles at your lunch break? Break it up a little bit. So instead of doing a bunch of, you know, runs that are all four, five, six miles, can you get two miles here, two miles there? It's an option. It's an option. So, you know, honestly, Sherry, whatever, whatever works best for you, for your schedule, for your, for your body, that's what you need to do. There isn't a right way or a wrong way. There's, there's your way. And so whatever works for you is what works for you. Keep up with the strength training. That's important stuff for sure. Um, Keep taking care of your body. Keep getting those miles in. Congratulations on 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 doing what you need to do. On figuring it out. On still running marathons at at uh, you know at, at, as you're approaching 66. That's fantastic. That's awesome. I know it's inspiring for me. It's motivating for me. It's where I want to be 30 years from now. Um, so keep on doing what you're doing. But yeah, don't worry too much about trying to make it perfect on how to do it. Just do what you got to do. Uh, and keep on, keep on doing your thing. So great job, Sherry. Uh, she comes up with it with another question right after that one. Um, she says your thoughts on decreasing time to complete the next marathon. So trying to get faster when she uses walk breaks, so kind of the Galloway run, walk type of thing. Um, should, should you, should I run more and walk less? Just run faster. I used to go 90, 30, as far as 90 seconds running 30 seconds walking for my first marathon and have, have gone up to 30 minutes of, or sorry, three minutes of running 30 seconds of walking for my last half. I only use the intervals for the race itself, plus for training when doing longer runs. So any, any suggestions to get faster while still incorporating that run walk? Yeah. I mean, again, just like with the last question, Sherry, there's not a perfect solution. There's what works best for you. And and the best thing is to try out some different timing variables during your training. So it might be to just try to run a little bit faster during your running segments and then still walk to recover that, that will work. You could trim down your walk time. So instead of doing 90, 30, maybe you do 90, 15, that could work. Uh, you could also, um, you know, extend your, your running intervals out. So it's like you did with the half marathon, maybe play with, you know, whether it's three minutes and 30 seconds, whether it's a, it's two minutes, two and a half, whatever you can play with some, some of those different numbers. Ultimately, the best bet is to play with them during your training, especially during your, your long runs and figure out kind of what is the sweet spot for you. Is it to run a bit faster and then to still have enough of a walk time to, to catch your breath, keep your heart rate under control? Then that's what you want to go with. Is it to, to keep your running pace the same, keep the running interval the same, but sh- shorten up the, the walk interval just a little bit? There you go. Extend the running time, but not, not in, increase the pace. That'll work too. There's, you know, you've got three variables. Basically you've got your running pace, your running duration, and your walking duration that you can play with. 
Um, and I, I like the suggestion that Jennifer made in reply in, in response to that question as well, that maybe, maybe there's a fourth variable picking up the pace of your walk. So when you run and then when you get to that walk interval, really get into a power hike. So it's not, it's not quite a jog. It's not quite a run, but it's not just a casual stroll either. It's, it's, it's work. You're still working when you're walking. So I guess there's four variables that you can play with duration of walk, duration of run, pace of the run and pace of the walk, improving any of those or increasing any of those, picking up the the pace, cutting down the durations. Any of those things will, will impact you as far as your overall finish time. The trick is that you got to figure out which one works best for you, for your fitness. You know, if if you're running too hard, then you can't keep your walk pace going, or maybe you can't maintain that interval throughout the the entirety of the race. So that's not going to be good. So you got to play with it, play with those variables during your training and try to figure out what is the, what is that sweet spot for you? And then lock in and get after on race day. And, and it, you know, if you're, if you're doing any of those things, that's going to make you faster, it's going to, it's going to, you know, play out on race day for sure. So good luck with that, Sherry. Hope that, uh, hope that 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 helps. Hope that both of those questions help you as you move forward this, this year with your race plans. Next question comes from Melody. She says, runners can usually identify physical fatigue and are able to back off a bit more to allow some recovery. How about mental fatigue as it relates to all aspects of running? What are some of the signs that you might be mentally fatigued? How do you know when it's time to take a break for the mental side of the sport as well? How long might be appropriate before you start losing fitness? You know, when you're taking that break, how do you know to, or how do you take a mental break? Um, so lots of questions there about kind of the mental side of, of the sport, mental fatigue, burnout, things like that. Um, and, and, you know, this is, again, this is one of those situations where everybody's signs and symptoms are going to be a little bit different, but for me, I think it really boils down to when running starts to become a chore, when running starts to be not fun. That's when I know that mentally I probably need to take a break. You know, my legs might feel good, but gosh, I just don't want to put my shoes on and get out the door. I want to do anything but that. That's a good sign that mentally I'm not engaged. Mentally, it's not fun anymore. Time to take a little break. So when I, when I notice that in myself, what do I do? I, I don't run. I usually will look at the calendar and say, Hey, there's two weeks left in this month. There's three weeks left in this month. Pick a date, pick it far enough out in advance. And I will not run until I turn the calendar over until it's been two weeks, three weeks, 10 days, whatever I feel like. However, however I, you know, if I catch it early enough, it usually doesn't take as much time. But if I've kind of been forcing it, because maybe there's a race coming up or something like that, and I've been forcing myself to keep running and it just kind of keeps digging worse and worse. And and that that mental fatigue, that mental burnout continues to get worse and worse. I might need longer and longer. So maybe it's a full month, whatever it is. I pick a date that I think is going to be far enough out in the horizon. Mark it on the calendar. I will not run until this day, period. Then it takes a little bit of discipline to stick to it because usually about halfway through that time frame, I'm like, gosh, I'm kind of itching, kind of ready for a run. But no, I said, I'm not going to run until X day. Stick with it. All right. And, and usually, at least in, in my experience, that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And if I get to that day and I'm not itching to run yet, well, time to move the goalpost. Time to set another day. Give myself another week, another two weeks, another three weeks, another month, whatever I think it might take. And now I'm not going to run until that point. And really, you know, just kind of let my, let my mind relax a little bit. Let me, let my mind not focus on splits and paces and heart rates and total miles and all that kind of stuff that can, that can, and does wear you down. All right. So how do you keep your fitness during that time though? How do you, how do you make sure that when you come back to running, you haven't lost everything that you've done? Well, just because you're not running doesn't mean you can't do something else, right? Doesn't mean you can't be doing some yoga. 
Doesn't mean you can't be on the bike. Doesn't mean you can't be swimming. You know, this time of year, if you have swimming access or pools or lakes or community pools, whatever, um, get some swimming in, get some cycling, go hiking, chase the kids around the yard, do some strength training, do some yoga. There's no, there's no shortage of things you can do that's, that's going to maintain some fitness. Are you going to drop a little bit? Well, if you're taking two, three, four, five, six weeks off, yeah, you might, you might lose a step or two, but you're not going to lose that much especially if you're maintaining some activity, doing some other things. And since you're not focused on running, you're able to just have fun with the other activities, with biking with the kids, with, with hiking with friends, with whatever the case might be, taking a yoga class, um, doing a boot camp, whatever you're doing, any of those types of other activities, you're going to maintain a, the, the majority of your fitness. And so once you come back and your mind is clear and your mind is free and you're excited to run again, eh, you're not going to notice much of a drop off at, at all. But if you do notice a little bit, you're going to be right back up in the matter of days to a week or two. You know, it's not going to take you long to get things back because your mind's going to be fresh. Your mind's going to be fun. It's going to be fun again. You're going to want to get out the door. You're going to get back, back into your running routine, back on track. And it's just going to be a minor blip on the radar when all is said and done. But yeah, I mean, if you start to notice that running, it becomes a chore. It's not fun. To me, that's a pretty good sign that you're burned out, that you're fatigued mentally and that's a great time to, to take a step back. Other things you can do if, if taking a step back is almost seems like it's maybe too much for you to handle, you know, do something where you stop tracking miles, just run, run quote unquote naked, you know, leave the watch at home, just go for runs, run as far as you want, as fast as you want at whatever intensity you want. Take some of those restraints off. Yes. I'm a fan of heart rate training. Yes. I like to have the data, but you know what? Sometimes that stuff can be too restrictive. So let go of it. Let go of it for a while. It's not, it's not going to undo everything you've done. It's not going to set you way back. All right. As long as you're listening to your body, you know, if you have, if you're dealing with some type of little injury or niggle as well there, you know, then maybe you don't want to just go out and hammer it. But if everything feels good with your body and you're just fed up with the constraints of heart rates or measuring distance or keeping track of your time splits, things like that, just leave the watch at home and go out and just go, go out and run, just have fun. Other things you can maybe do, um, you know, Work with a, a, a friend, you know, make it more of a social outing, especially maybe somebody who's a bit newer to the sport than you or doesn't have the endurance that you have or doesn't run the pace that you have. Now, instead of you worrying about your times and your splits and your pace, you're helping your friend. So you're bringing somebody along that's, that's you know, a bit newer to the sport or not as advanced, you know, and I hate to say it that way, but not as fit, whatever. You know what I'm trying to say, and I'm not trying to say it in a bad way. Just somebody who's, who's not quite to where you are at your level with fitness. And so you're running with that person. So now it's, it's not about you. It's about them. You're giving back to somebody else. You're helping them out, which is going to make it again, less mentally draining for you. It's like, Hey, what do you need? Do we need to stop to walk? Do we need to go? Do you need me to help push you? Whatever. Um, maybe volunteer to race. That's a good thing to do too. Vol- you know, see a race from a different perspective. Uh, and that can usually kind of re reignite some of that passion, some of that joy for running. But if you're noticing that you're fatigued mentally, burned out mentally, back off, cut yourself some slack. Cause the last thing you want to do is keep forcing it because then it becomes a chore. Then it becomes work. Then it becomes something that you don't enjoy doing. And then you're just going to resent the sport and want to walk away from it. And, and I don't think any of us want to do that, but in the moment, yeah, that, that can, you know, you can just screw it. I'm done. You don't want to get to that point. So if you start to notice, give yourself a break, cut back. And obviously I'm, I'm always happy to answer those questions, whether you're somebody who's one of my athletes, whether you're paying me or whether you're just part of the group, whether you just listen to the show, ask for, you know, this is what I'm dealing with. What do you think? And I'll, you know, Hey, maybe it's time to take a, take a little break. Give yourself a couple weeks. See if the, the clouds kind of freeze, free your mind 
and then you can get back to having fun. So hopefully that stuff helps Melody. Um, and if we need to talk more, please let me know. Next question comes from Michaela. Uh, so I signed up for a race that is one of those kind of timed events where you do one distance per hour for 24 hours. So in this case, it's a 5k per hour for 24 hours. You can do as many as, as you can do. You know, you can do one, you can do five, 10, 24, whatever you get points awarded for how much, how many that you do. Um, you know, and it's, that's kind of where the competition lies. She says, so how would you train for such an event? Her goal is to do at least 10, hopefully more. Should you really train or just kind of make it like a party and see what happens? So yeah, honestly, Michaela, if, if you're, if your goal is to do more than just one or two of these things, which obviously it is, you definitely need to train for it. I mean, you're, you're thinking about doing 10 of these things, which is awesome, but do that math for a second. 10, 10, five K's. That's, that's 50 K. That's an ultra marathon, right? You can't, you, you, I, I guess you probably can. I'm not going to say you can't, but I'm going to say that it's probably not advisable to just go from doing a couple runs a week, you know, maybe a long run of three, four five miles. And then to go out and do an ultra marathon, that's, that's asking for trouble. At, at, at best, you're going to struggle to get out of bed the next day because your legs are going to be just hating you. You know, at, at worst, you're going to be injured, set back, having some serious issues after something like that. So you definitely need to train. There's no magic way to train for it. You just need, you need time on your feet. You need some miles. So, you know, getting some long runs in, getting, getting some, some miles during the week. Um, you know, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing overly complicated. It's just getting miles. You know, if, if you're, if your goal is to run, 31 miles over that and maybe more in that 24 hour period, you don't need to go out and run, you know, 30 mile training runs, but you need to, you know, get up to where you're running, you know, 20 miles, 20 miles, 22 miles, something like that. Um, and you may also want to mix in a little bit of, of something that's kind of specific to this race to where, you know, you're doing some runs where you're running for a while and then you're stopping and sitting or moving around, walking, whatever, whatever you think you need to do best, but doing something for 10 or 15 minutes that isn't running and then go run again and then stop you know, kind of chunking things up like that. So yeah, but you definitely, I would definitely encourage you to train for it. Now, if you just want to participate and get one or two laps, then yeah, whatever, that's fine. You can just do that and have it at the party and enjoy yourself. But if you're going to try to get 10 of these things in plus, like I said, do that math. That's, that's a 50 K that's an ultra marathon. Um, and you, you know, you want to come out of it, not injured, right? You want to come out of it feeling okay, which means you got to train for it, which means you got to get some time on your feet. Okay. So get, get some of those miles in but definitely train for it. Um, and it, like I said, it's not anything crazy. It's just getting miles, getting miles. Um, and maybe it's not a bunch of long, long runs, but it's every day. Maybe, maybe do some mornings and some nights, some things like that, where you're coming after it, you know, cause you may not do 10 straight on the day of the race. You might do one and then take an hour off and do another and take an hour off and do another and take another, an hour off. But that's, that's a challenge too. But if you can get time on your feet, you can get enough miles in the training. That's going to be the biggest thing you can do. Cause that's going to help get your body ready for getting 31 plus miles on the day of that race. So sounds exciting. Sounds awesome. would love to hear how it goes. So keep us posted. Okay. Hope that helps there for you, Michaela. Uh, next question comes from Victoria. She says, I know that consistent training and dedication provide results in running, but I'm very interested in learning how to train my brain to be more stress resistant as I think it is my biggest weakness when it comes to endurance running and even other aspects of my life. Any ideas? I find that the more I listen to runners who are doing hundred plus mile races, that the better my quote unquote measly six to 13 miles seems there has to be some connection there. In short, how can I train my mental toughness? Thanks. Uh, Victoria, I don't know if you've been listening very long, but, uh, I'm guessing that maybe you're kind of new to the show because th th this has been my bugaboo for years. And I've talked about it several times that my, my mental game is, is definitely a weak 
a wink, maybe the weak link in my, in my game as well. So I get it. I get it. Um, and I, I, there, there's plenty of books out there. I, I highlighted a few in the show notes. You can get to those at uh, disruns.com slash, what did I say? This is seven, 732, 732. We'll take you right there. Um, and those are all affiliate links. So they help to support the show. They're the links through Amazon. Um, you, you click and buy something and it throws a couple of shekels in the, in the account, but, uh, some, some suggestions of books that I've read that, that have helped me. Three of them are kind of running specific or, or at least sports specific. One of them is more businessy, but I think it, it works as well. Um, the champion's mind is one book, uh, mind gym, mind gym. That's M I N D mind gym. Uh, how bad do you want it? And then 13 things mentally strong people don't do. Those are, are all great books. You can also get I think all of them are available on, on Amazon uh, or on Amazon, on Audible. Uh, so you can get them and listen to them and, and, and hear the audio. And if you want to try out Audible for free, here's another plug, another way to support the show. Dizruns.com slash Audible. Your first, your first book is free there. Uh, and you get a 30-day trial. So you can check that out. I know, I know at least How Bad Do You Want It and 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do are both available on audio, audio um, on Audible. Easy for me to say. Goodness gracious. Um, but I, and I think at least The Champion's Mind and maybe Mind Gym are there as well. I'm not 100% sure on Mind Gym. But uh, those books are all great resources, great things to help you kind of you know learn some of the tricks and, and tips and, and tactics mentally. But in my opinion... The best thing you can do is just experience trial by fire. You know, the more you do some of these, you know, six to 13 mile training runs, the more you do some half marathons, the more maybe you you push on to doing some 14, 15, 16 mile training runs. Eventually, the more you do that kind of thing, the more exposure you get to those type of distances, the more your brain starts to go, Hey, I can, I can do this. I can do this. And anytime you start to go farther, I think that there's always some trepidation. There's always some uh, unknown, right? But the more you get into the ballpark, the more, the more you do it, the more your brain goes, yeah, no big deal, you know? And that's, and that's why for me personally, one of my goals this year is to do a 26 plus mile, you know, a marathon distance run or longer each month is so that not, not to, to be braggadocious, but so that the next time I line up to actually race a marathon, it doesn't seem so scary because I've done 26 miles. I've done 31 miles. I've done, you know, whatever I've done those distances so much in the last year that it's not that scary to just line up and, and hammer it as opposed to if I only do one marathon a year or one every couple of years, you know, even if I'm training a lot and doing the same total amount of volume and training, it's always kind of un, unsure, unknown if, if the longest training run you've done has been 20 miles or 22 miles. So having, for me, having those 26 mile training runs, those, those S and G marathons is, is super helpful physically and mentally. So I think shifting it back to you, Victoria, you know, if, if I'm reading the question, some of these measly, quote unquote, measly six to 13 mile runs, just keep doing them and, and you'll get more comfortable with some of these longer runs. And pretty soon doing a 10 miler, doing a 12 miler, doing a 13 miler, doing a half marathon, you know, it's, it's, it, it becomes, I don't know if it ever becomes quote unquote easy, but it certainly becomes easier because your, your, your mind is, is been there, done that. No big deal. We're not afraid of 13 miles like we used to be, you know, you know, and I would imagine if you look back, there was probably a time that running a 5k was like, God, that's a long freaking way to go. And now I'm assuming probably not that big of a deal for you. Yes. Your fitness has improved, but also your, your mental, it's not a, it's not a mental issue anymore because you've done it so many times. So you may never get to that point with a half marathon or with 15 miles or 20 miles or whatever, but the more you expose yourself to it, I think the less, you know, kind of exposure therapy, uh, but the, the less daunting it becomes, the more steeled your mind becomes because you've done it before. It's not scary. So, um, read the books, but I also think experience is something that has helped me a lot 
and it may help you. And, and obviously listen to other people's stories as well. You hear them, you hear other people talk about it and you're like, yeah, well, you know, if, if this guy, this gal can do it and you know, they're, they've got family and they've got full-time jobs, maybe I can do it too. And so that becomes more, it becomes more possible, which opens your mind up and then you start to do it and it becomes, you know, less of a mental chore. The mental, the mental challenge never goes away completely, but I think it, it can become a bit easier as we go. And I think exposure plays a big part in that. So hopefully that helps Victoria. Thank you for a very good question. It's something that certainly, like I said, hits home, hits close to home for me because it's something that I still struggle with, but I do think I'm getting better at it. I think those books have helped me and I think the exposures helped me. So hopefully they'll help you as well. Next question comes from Julie says, uh, asking for a friend of mine from another group with her permission, of course. And here is the question quote training question for a slow runner. I am running a full marathon in November and I'm likely to finish around the six hour mark. I am running with a charity that provides a training plan. If I follow the training program set up by the charity I'm running with, it mostly has long runs by time. Meaning that, you know, you run in a certain amount of time, not on a distance. And it says it peaks at about three hours. Miles wise, this only gets me to half marathon. If the charity has an option to customize a training plan, should I email them or trust their schedule? So Julie's friend, everybody listening, y'all know what, you know, y'all know what I'm going to say, right? One size fits all, not, not, uh, not exactly my jam. So, uh, Julie's friend in all seriousness, uh, in all sincerity, all jokes aside, I would definitely ask for something that's more customized, ask for something that's, that's catered more towards you. Um, because this idea that you only need to go for three, three hours and that's good enough to, to run a marathon there's people that believe that and there's people that have, have succeeded with that. It doesn't set well with me. Um, just because in your situation, if you, if you're guessing that a three hour training run is going to be about half of a marathon, that's a lot of uncharted territory. That's a lot of, of, you know, area that mentally you don't know what to expect. Physically, you don't know what to expect. Um, and I just think that in most cases it's helpful to go a bit more than that. You know, you may not, there's not necessarily a magic. You have to get to this distance, you know, whether it's 20 miles, 18 miles, four hours, four and a half, whatever there, there's some variance in there and, and definitely not one size fits all, you know, as far as I'm, I'm anti one size fits all. I'm also anti the idea that you have to do that. Everybody should only do this or has to do this minimum amount of distance to get ready for a marathon. There's, it's a sliding scale. There's lots of factors at play that, that hopefully you can get support with from the charity that you're working for and they can, they can help work with you. Um, I just think that to only have run 13 or 14 miles, whatever it would shake out to be, um, in preparation for that marathon, that's tough. That's tough. It leaves a lot of, of questions in, in the mind, lots of questions as far as what the body's going to do, how the body's going to feel. And I feel like that training is supposed to help to prepare you, help get your body ready so that you don't have as much uncertainty on race day. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely encourage that. And if, if it's not something they can do, or if they want to charge you an arm and a leg, a plug for my book, be ready on race day. Gosh, I, I'm doing all the plugs here. All of a sudden didn't necessarily mean to do that, but you know, that's, it's a $15 book or $14 book that can help you go. All right, here's what the training plan is. How can I tweak it and adjust it to really make it my own? Because I, I definitely, um, am going to, you know, I'll, I'll, there's not a lot of Hills that I'll die on, but I'll die on the Hill that one size fits all is, is the next best thing to worthless. So having this, this gen- generic plan that everybody for the charity is following is something, but it's probably not the best thing for you. Getting something that's a little bit more tweaked, a little more dialed into you, your, your goals, um, and where you are right now in your fitness, that's always going to be better. So if, if you can, if they can help you out with that, great. If not, um, 
there are resources out there and I'm always happy to, to entertain a question to, to, you know, shoot me an email, a, a message, whatever, and we'll try to help. But Julie, thanks for sending the question along for your friend. And I hope that that helps. Uh, and if there's anything else I can do, please let me know. Next question comes from Deb. She says, I've seen charts that discuss running pace improvements with weight loss. Can you talk about the reality of how much extra pounds slow us down as runners? Also, when you get down to an quote unquote ideal rate weight range, does one to five pounds here or there make that big of a difference? Thank you. Oh boy. Deb, you're, you're putting me on, uh, I'm blast here. Cause this is one of those questions that I can get in trouble. Cause you know, I'll, I'll get my, my yap will get flapping and I'll say something that comes out the wrong way. And, uh, whoo boy, the, the, the hate man, just, you know, y'all back off on the hate mail on this one. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to try not to answer this question in a way that's any, anything different than just let's talk some facts. Okay. And then, and then I'll, we'll kind of try to, to blur that a little bit. So, you know, when it comes to running, when it comes to self propulsion, obviously any extra weight that you're carrying is, is, extra force, extra energy required to keep moving it forward. And that counts as if it's body weight, that counts if it's extra gear, water, clothes, I mean, whatever, any extra weight, you know, it's just, just facts, just physics law, laws of, of physics here requires more energy. That said, some of these, these articles that have come out about what's your ideal race weight and you got to lose, you, you know, you need to be down at this range in order to, to run your best race. I think that's, that's a very, very slippery slope that I am not at all willing to say that that's something that you need to do. And here's why some of these, th- you know, some of these ways that you might try to lose weight, um, especially, you know, like, Oh, the race is coming up and, and I'm just, you know, I'm six pounds from my quote unquote ideal race weight, according to this book or this chart or this, whatever. Um, I need to lose those six pounds in order so I can have my best chance at my BQ or PR or whatever. A first and foremost, those charts, that's just another one size fits all gimmick, right? Like let's, let's not kid ourselves. Um, you know, yes, you, you know, there's different, different types of, of weight, you know, it could be lean, you know, lean muscle mass. Then you're, if you're more just jacked, you got more muscle muscles. Um, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be heavier, but you're not going to, you know, that's not the weight you necessarily want to lose. Um, you know, and, and again, I mean, just, just, I don't want to get myself in trouble because I'm not trying to say anything that's this controversial here. Let's just, let's just not, let's just agree that any of these charts, they're not gospel. You know, there, there's something that's put out there that, that there's some truth to it again, that, that, you know, if you can, if you can cut some weight, it makes it a little bit easier to go. But, you know, if you're going to try to cut a bunch of weight in the last, whatever week, 10 days, um, you probably can't really do it in a healthy manner. You're probably doing it from really restricting calories. You're probably doing it from maybe cutting back on the amount of fluids that you're intaking because water weight. Um, and, and in either of those cases, you know, so you're going to get to the finish line a few pounds down, maybe in that ideal weight range. But at what cost? You're showing up at the finish line now, maybe malnourished, maybe underfueled, maybe underhydrated, and so now you're going to go try to run your race. But you, you know, so in order to get yourself into this quote-unquote ideal weight range, you put yourself behind the eight ball on the the nutrition, hydration, race readiness stage. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? I mean, that, that doesn't sound like something that's going to be a, a very good trade-off. Um, you know, so, so it's a little bit different than what your question, but, but something that I used to maybe struggle with a little bit, but now I'm, I'm all in on, I carry my own hydration pack and water for pretty much every race I do. All right. And so I've got two bottles. They're both, I think 22 or 23 ounces. So basically about, about 40, 45 ounces of water when they're both full between that, the pack, which the pack is pretty light, but whatever we're looking at three plus pounds of additional weight that I carry on race day. Is that three plus pounds? going to slow me down a little bit, you know, versus if I was, if I was running without that. Sure. 
what, and, and we're not talking about much, a few seconds, maybe a minute at most over the course of a marathon. So it's not much, but how much am I saving by not having to maneuver through the, the, the water lines? You know, when you get to an aid station, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about those. I can take a sip whenever I want to. I don't have to try to like to choke down a water cup and splash it all over my face and bend over gagging because it went down the wrong pipe. Cause I've got a nice little spigot on the end of my bottle. I can, I can squirt the water in nice and easy when I'm ready for it. No surprises, no, no wearing a bunch of, of Gatorade or Powerade or tailwind or whatever all over my face. Um, I think, and this is unscientific, but I think that when push comes to shove the extra quote unquote weight of carrying my fluids and having my, my pack on, I more than make up for it over the course of the race by, by convenience, by not having to stop at aid stations, things like that. So shifting back to the body weight discussion, I think that you'd be farther ahead to just train well, eat well, be well hydrated. And if that puts you a little bit outside of the ideal weight range from whatever BS chart that said that this is what the ideal rate range is for you, I think you're going to be farther ahead than trying to, to cut calories leading up to the race. Okay. I hope that that doesn't get me too much, too much trouble in saying that. I hope that, that you, you can, you all can understand the, the logic that I'm trying to go here and that, you know, yes, weight is a factor. And if you want to get faster and you're carrying around a bunch of, of extra body weight, that's one way that you could conceivably help to get faster is to drop some pounds, but it's not the only way it's not the end all be all. And for the love of, of everything, holy Let's stop just going at, well, this chart says this is what my, my number needs to be. It's no better than the body index chart. It's no better than, um, you know, it's, 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 it's no better than trying to fit, figure out how, you know, how many, uh, you know, how, how long your shoes should be alive for how much, you know, what the, the number of steps per minute is the ideal. Those are all just general guidelines that aren't specific to any one person. And so be healthy, focus on your health, focus on your training and whatever the scale does, that's what the scale does. Let's not worry as much about that in order to help us improve and work towards our running goals. So hopefully I navigated that minefield. Thanks for, for throwing me out there, Deb. But I hope that that makes sense. Hope that helps you. Hope that helps everybody as you think about, you know, because I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I think about that too. Like, man, if I could, if I could drop, you know, a few more pounds, um, it's going to, it's going to make it a little bit easier for me to run, but it's not something I get caught up on. It's something I, I maybe pay attention to, but I don't freak out about it. And I certainly don't dramatically change any dietary habits leading up to a race. I just do what I do. And the scale says what it says. And I go out there and try to get after it based on my training and my fitness on that day. So hope that all helps. I uh, got another handful or ish of questions getting to the, to the final stretch here. A uh, question from Scott says, Hey Danny, I run four to five times a week. Usually it's a long run on Saturdays, speed work on the track on Wednesday and five or six miles on Monday and Thursday. Sometimes I mix in a three mile recovery run on Sunday. I want to start uh, rotating in some strength training for my legs, but what day should I do that? Tuesday before the track on Friday before the long run help. So Scott, my, my take on this is, is kind of fly, flies a little bit counter to, to, you know, some things that other people talk about, but I say that the best time to do your leg strength training is after a good hard speed workout. So I would say Wednesday, I would say Wednesday after you hit the track, that's the time to hit your legs. Why? Well, we don't want to, I don't want you to do it on Thursday or I'm sorry, on Tuesday, the day before the track, because then you show up to the track and your legs are still trashed from doing a bunch of squats and lunges and, and things like that the day before. So you're not going to get as much out of your, your track workout, your, your speed workout. Okay. We, and as, as runners, that should be our priority, right? Is we're doing these other things to help supplement our running and help make our running better, help keep us injury resistant, things like that. So, you know, the, that speed workout, that's, you know, you want to be 
at full systems tilt, ready to go for that speed workout. But after the speed workout, your legs, yes, your legs are kind of trashed. So you might not get quite as much from, from the weights, from the gym, from doing the, the leg strengthening, but so what you've already, you've already taken, you know, your legs aren't fresh. So now you're hitting them a little bit harder with some weights. Great. That means you even need to spend less time in the gym to get a good workout, to get the benefits. Then you've got Thursday is just kind of an easy run to loosen the legs out. Friday is a day off so that your legs are as fresh and as ready as they can possibly be for your long run on Saturday. I say Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday after your track workout, ideally as close to immediately after as possible, but it, it can spread out a bit. You know, you could do your track workout in the morning, legs in the evening. That's fine. Uh, but I'd say do them Wednesday after the track. If you want to get a second day, then the second day would be Saturday after the long run. All right. But prioritize the long run, prioritize the speed workout and, and prioritize the rest days, keep the rest days holy. So don't try to mix it in on a rest day. Um, you know, those, those are, those would be the two best times I would say to do it once a week is probably sufficient, especially at first, as you're first getting into it. Um, you're going to be pretty sore after a good speed workout and then a, a good leg workout. You're going to be Thursday's going to be rough, my friend. Um, uh, but you'll get, you'll adapt. Your body will overcome. It'll get used to it. Um, and then if you want to start mixing in a second day, then maybe after the long run would be good. Um, but honestly, one day of, of good leg work, probably, probably plenty, uh, for most of us because you're, you are working your, your legs a bit with every run, run, right? So you don't need to go crazy there. Um, and you're not trying to, you know, remember that, that you're not trying to add a bunch of muscle mass and size and, and things like that. You're trying to, to build strength and endurance and explosiveness for running benefits, not for, you know, wearing, uh, we're in the, the, uh, the banana hammock at the bodybuilding competition, right? So, you know, with, with what those goals are, you don't need to hit it like crazy. One, one good day a week for the legs, maybe another day for some upper body, some arms, some back, some shoulders, things like that would be great. That's, that's probably plenty. So I uh, hope that makes sense, Scott, but I, I would definitely lean towards Wednesday after the speed workout. That's the best time to really get after it for your legs. Next question comes from Karen says, uh, since last summer, I've switched to keeping most of my runs much slower than I used to run them. I'm wondering how often I should do speed work and what kind of speed work would you suggest right now? It seems that I've somehow managed to have a short race almost monthly. So that has been my speed work for the month. Um, so Karen, uh, you know, th- this is where sometimes we get lost in the forest for the trees when we start to, to try to figure out, or I start to, to talk about what I do or what, what my thoughts are with heart rate training. And some, and people start to argue back about, you know, well, 80, 20 versus, versus strict math versus whatever. Here's, here's the scoop. All right. When it comes to, to, to heart rate training, building that aerobic base, easy running, whatever you want to call it, there's still room in that, in that training philosophy and, and all versions of those training philosophies to do some hard speed workout type of stuff. All right. The trick is not to do too much once a month, probably good twice a month. Yeah, that's probably a good, that's, that's all right too. Three times, four times a month. So you're not talking maybe once a week. That would be kind of about the cap. I think I would put on it. All right. I personally, I do probably one or two speed workouts, quote unquote, speed workouts per month. I haven't done a proper speed workout since August of 2018. I mean, you know, and when I say proper, I mean something like, um, you know, some type of repeat, some type of thing where I'm really pushing hard. I'll probably do something this, this summer. Uh, at some point might, might jump into 5k, might do some, something at the track, something like that. But for the most part, my, my workouts are either races where it's, it's, you know, I'm doing a marathon, I'm doing an ultra, but I'm not monitoring my heart rate. So I'm, I'm pushing past my normal easy levels. Um, uh, but it's not, you know, I'm not sky high of course, but I'm, I'm pushing, um, or I'll do like a fast finish long run where I start off easy for 15 miles. And then I push the pace for the last five and really let my heart rate just go, let it, let it go high at that point. Um, and push the pace with everything I've got at the end there. 
that really seems to work well for me. I think, I think it works well for me because most of my goal races are longer races. They're marathons, they're ultras. So it gives me that extra boost at the end of a, at the end of a race that like I've, I've pushed hard at the end of workouts before, as opposed to quote unquote, just doing some speed work, doing some eight hundreds or some four hundreds or something like that. Those things are beneficial though. Don't, don't get me wrong there. Um, so what I guess what I'm trying to say is there's not one perfect type of speed work. Anything where you're working hard is going to, is going to be beneficial. Um, less is usually more, you know, in, in relation of once, twice, three times a, a month, that's a, that's a pretty good target. And if you can mix in a, a 5k or a 10k a couple times a month, Hey, you don't even have to do proper, you know, quote unquote, proper speed work. Cause you're getting it on those, on those runs where you're just pedal to the metal and just hammering it. Um, you know, if, if you have a month or two where you don't have many races, then, then, you know, push it for a couple of workouts, do a tempo run, do some repeats, do a fast finish, whatever. Um, but you know, I think, I think, and again, you're going to get some, some argument and there's, there's some, some gray area here. There's some, some leeway, but for me, twice a month seems to be the right, kind of the right target. Um, and that's just kind of a little bit of trial and error. There's a little bit, that's a lot of bit. I'll be honest. That's a lot from drinking the Kool-Aid of, of Maffetone and just how, you know, he basically says that you really shouldn't, he, he's, there's really not that you shouldn't, but there's really no reason to do hard workouts except for races, run your races hard, do everything else easy. You're going to build that aerobic base and that's, what's going to be most beneficial for you on race day. I believe that. I believe that. I do like to, to blow the doors off once in a while though, you know? Um, so maybe that's a 5k, maybe that's a, a time on the track, whatever. Um, a couple times a week, a couple times a month. That's a pretty good, pretty good target. Plus or minus that, you know, three times a month, one time a month, whatever you're going to get some benefits. Uh, but as long as you're, you're working that those easy runs most of the time, I promise you you're making progress. And I, I feel like from following you, you know, your posts and comments and things like that in the last several months, Karen, you're seeing that that easy running is paying off. So stick with it, mix in a race here and there, mix in a speed workout here and there, and you'll be good to go. Uh, we got one, two, three, four questions left. First one comes from Brooke says, uh, if it is your first time, or if it's your first time pacing, what time should you pace for a half marathon? I've always heard to add 10 or 15 minutes to your PR. So you're running comfortably. Is that true? Yeah, ish, you know, something like that, Brooke. I, I think that the first question is what pacing groups are available, you know, like depending on, on the race, depending on uh, how big the race is, who's in charge of finding pacers, you may find that there's only a couple of pace groups that are already, that are currently available. So then you can kind of look at it and go, all right, well, this one, you know, clearly this one is faster than my PR. So I don't want to be in charge of pacing that one. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I, you know, if it was me, if I, if I'm just getting to pick what, what am I, what is my pace time going to be? Um, I'm going to be looking at things like, uh, definitely I want it to be slower than my PR. Obviously I want it to be comfortably slower so that I'm not stressed about making sure I have, I have to run my best that day to, to stay on the pace range. Because remember as a pacer, it's not about you. It's about the people that are relying on you to help, the, help you reach their goal, um, or help them reach their goal based on running the time that it says on the flag that you're carrying that you're going to run. So, you know, I would look at probably 10 to 15 minutes would be kind of the, the minimum, I think that you, that would be a, a good safe distance. Uh, as far as, you know, my, my PR is 145, whatever it is. One, that's, that's the one, if you heard the story where I beat myself up for a while over four seconds, I think it's 145.04. I was trying to get under 145, right? Um, 145.04, I would be very comfortable pacing anything from 155 to about 230. Uh, if we start going past 230 now, I'm, I'm worried that my form might get a little bit, you know, that might be almost too slow for me to run comfortably as far as form goes. Obviously, energy-wise, I could run that pretty comfortably, but, you know, that would be my window. Is that the same for you as far as to having a 20, 25, 30 minute window? Maybe. Um, but you know, I, I would look at, you know, what 
what pace can you feel like you can run comfortably while maintaining good form by, by being able to be positive, things like that. I could go 155, I think, without any issue. Um, I wouldn't want to go much faster. I, I could go faster than that, but I wouldn't want to go much faster than that just because, you know, I don't, I don't want to put too much pressure on myself to be able to hit the time. I know I can hit 155. I know I can hit two flat, 210, 215, 220. No, no worries there at all. Um, start getting past 230. That might be too much for me. So yeah, I think, I think 10, 15 minutes would be the minimum amount of time off of, off of your PR that I would look at, you know, and then up to maybe 20, 30, 40 minutes. If you can feel comfortable with that pace. The other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, how long ago was your PR? Is that fairly recent? Is it meaning, is that a time that you could probably replicate right now versus if your PR was six, eight years ago, is that still realistic? Is that still a realistic measuring point? You might have been, you might be appreciably faster than that now, but you just haven't run a real hard race since then. Maybe you're not, don't have that same level of fitness anymore. So you need to go maybe 20 minutes off of your PR, 25 minutes off of your PR because of where you are right now. So take a look at the recent data, recent runs that you've done, um, and maybe use that as much or more to help determine what would be a good pace for you to run as a pacer than PRs from two, three, four years ago. Um, but congratulations on, on getting into it or at least looking into pacing Brooke. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's, it's can be a little bit stressful though. So give yourself plenty of cushion at a pace, you know, you can pretty comfortably handle and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Uh, next question comes from Barb says, I just signed up for my first trail run. Is there anything I should or should not wear or do? So I don't come off as a total noob. What are the main differences I should expect from a traditional road race? So Barb, that's a, that's a great question. And, and one thing that I would, uh, like to preference my answer with here is that, uh, please remember that I'm not a trail running pro myself. I've, I've run on the trails a few times. I've done a few trail races, so I guess I've probably got more experience than you do, but I'm not a trail veteran. I haven't, I haven't seen all the things, done all the things on the trails like some people have. So a few things that I would consider one, just definitely remember that for the most part, people don't care too much about what you're, what you're doing, what you're wearing, as long as what you're doing and what you're wearing isn't impacting them at all, whatever. Um, but a couple things to, to keep in mind. Trail shoes. Are they required? No. You know, look at, look at the race you're running. What kind of trail is it? Um, if it's a pretty, you know, kind of answered this question for Nicole earlier, if you're, if you're running a pretty pedestrian trail, you know, having trail shoes, great. Not having trail shoes. Also great. Nobody's going to look at you sideways. If you show up to a race wearing road running shoes, as long as it's not some really gnarly trail or muddy trail, something like that, then you, then people may not look at you sideways, but you're going to probably kick yourself for not having some shoes with a little more grip to them. But if it's a pretty calm trail, pretty good conditions, dryish conditions, road shoes, trail shoes, no big deal there. Um, another thing that's going to be different, you'll probably want to make sure you have some type of water system with you, whether it's a handheld water bottle, whether it's, you know, a vest with bottles, a vest with a bladder and the, the hose that comes into your mouth. Um, whatever the case is, most trail races, at least the trail races that I've done, they don't have nearly as many water stops as a traditional road race would. So where most road races have a water stop water stations about every mile. Um, I feel like on the trails, you know, five miles minimum, sometimes eight miles, 10 miles between water stops. A lot of times that's because of logistics. You know, you just, you just can't just set a table wherever you want, unless you want to, you know, hike, hike through the woods with a couple of five gallon coolers full of water and and nobody wants to do that. Right. So, um, as trail runners, we kind of have to carry our own water a lot of times. Um, so, so make sure you've got something that you're comfortable with, whether it's a belt with some bottles, whether it's a handheld, whether it's a a vest, whatever it is, you're probably going to have to carry some water. You're probably going to want to carry some water. Um, at the race I did this past weekend, apparently there was one, one lady who didn't bring any water with her and needless to say, she didn't finish the race. I don't think there was anything too serious. I think she figured it out and and bailed out before things got uh, super serious, 
but not having a water bottle and having water stations every three to three to eight miles apart, that's, that can be a problem, especially if it's a summertime race, heat and humidity, things like that. So make sure you've got water with you. Um, another thing, check with the race about whether or not they will supply cups. So again, this past race that I did, they, they said in the, in the fine print, Hey, make sure you bring a collapsible cup or something like that. If you want to have any of the, you know, Coke, ginger ale, pickle juice, any of those kind of special drinks that are available at a lot of aid stations, especially if you're doing an ultra, those types of things will be available. Um, because they weren't going to have cups. They're trying to reduce the amount of, of garbage refuse, you know, try to be, be green as much as possible. A lot of trail races do that. They, they tend towards trying to be sustainable as much as possible. So, you know, not having a bunch of trash out on the, out on the trail is a good thing. So, you know, having some type of little, little plastic cup, little something that you can carry with you again in your, in your pack, in your pouch, whatever. Um, and, and, you know, if you go to any type of, of at least trail type of store, camping store, they usually have these collapsible plastic type of cups. Um, you can slip one of those into, into a pocket pretty easily and pull it out when you need it, snap it to attention, get a, get a cup of, uh, of Coke or ginger ale or whatever. Um, and, and chug along that down while still being able to keep your bot, your water bottles, you know, clean for just water. So that might be something that you want to look into. Um, the, the last thing that I would encourage you to remember as you're getting ready for your first trail race is that trail races are much different than road races as far as what you'll be able to do time-wise. Okay. So whatever times you're used to running on the road, throw those out of your mind, throw those out of the window when it comes to the trail. All right. Running trails between the, the terrain, between, you know, the surface that you're running on, it might be rocky. It might be sandy. It might be a mix of both. Um, you have to work harder on the trail to run the same pace that you do on the road. It's pretty simple physics force, force, you know, equal force, opposite direction type of thing. If there's, if there's a softer ground, it takes more force. It absorbs more of that, that force that you lose some of that momentum that you get from running on pavement. So, you know, don't freak out if you're appreciably slower in the trail than you are on the road. It's normal. It's normal. So I think, I think, I hope at least that those things help you. Um, you know, when it, I mean, pretty typical standard running fair or running, running attire is going to work. Um, I mean, I wore the big farmer Diz hat with the, the big wide brim hat to try to have a little bit more shade out on the trail this past weekend. I don't know. A couple of you might've looked at me side-eyed, but whatever, like I'm, I'm bringing some shade with me y'all. Like it's going to be hot as blazes. It's Florida in, in the end of May sun's sun's high. I want some shade, you know? So that's what I did. I, and, and whatever, as long as you're comfortable, uh, you'll be fine. But yeah, shoes, uh, water stuff. That's, that's probably the big thing. Make sure you got a, a good water bottle, whether it's handheld, something that you're carrying, whatever. Um, because the, the hydration situation on, on most trails is going to be much fewer and farther between than it is on the road. Um, and likewise for fuel too, you may need to carry a little bit more fuel, um, based on, you know, when you're going to be able to stop for drinks and things like that. Um, and I guess maybe the last thing, please don't litter. I, that, that irritated the hell out of me this weekend. Saw some places where people had taken a, a, a gel or whatever and threw the, through the, the packet on the trail. Come on now. I, it's a, it's a huge pet peeve of mine when people do that on a, at a road race, but on the trail, you gotta be kidding me. You are, you are a piece of crap. And that might be a bit strong, but if, if you're just taking a, a, a gel down and throwing the wrapper on the trail in the woods that you are not a good person in my book for doing something like that. So, you know, be, be prepared. If you're going to take some, to, some of those types of fuels, please don't just throw it on the ground, stick it back in your pocket till you get to the aid station. They'll probably have a trash there. You can drop it in there. Okay. So, um, hope those things all help Barb have fun though. That's always the most important thing for any race, right? But definitely the trail, definitely the first time doing a trail race, have fun, enjoy it. Um, and, and, uh, 
can't wait to hear about it when it, when it finally happens. Uh, last two questions, both coming from my man. Tom says, uh, it is peak racing season here in Western New York. Do you have any tips for running one or two races every weekend? These are mostly five K's with a few 10 K's thrown in. So, um, you know, kind of going back almost to Karen's question a little bit here, Tom, but you know, as far as training goes, I would, if, if you're basically running a race, at least one race every weekend, man, I wouldn't do any speed work throughout the rest of the week. Use those, use those races, use those five K's, the occasional 10 K as your speed work for, for the training and everything else. Just keep it nice and easy. Keep that base strong. Uh, keep the legs loose, all that kind of good stuff. Um, as far as the races themselves, you know, if it's, if it's quote unquote, just one race for the weekend, probably nothing that you really need to, to worry too much about. Do your normal pre-race routine, post-race routine, um, all those kind of things. You'll be just fine. Now, if you've got a couple races on a, you know, whether it's the same day or one Saturday, one Sunday, um, in those situations, you'll definitely want to really invest in cooling down after the first race. You know, if it's a, if it's a 5k, you might end up with a three or four mile cool down run afterwards where you're just nice and easy, keeping the legs moving, helping everything calm down. And then the next day before the race, whether it's 5k or 10k the next day or later that that afternoon, um, you know, you're probably going to want to get another two or three miles to loosen the legs back up because the last thing you want to do is go hammer that second race on, on cold legs that are kind of tired. You're asking for an injury there. So make sure the legs are nice and warm, nice and loosened up. Maybe a little extra foam rolling time, a little bit extra yoga, stretching, things like that to keep the body loose, feeling good. Um, but other than that, I mean, you know, have fun, no, not, not a whole lot else to add other than just make sure that those, those warm ups and cool downs prioritize, especially on the weekends when you've got double, double races going on. Uh, and then last question I, from Tom, again, I also plan to run a 15 K in July. Do you have any tips for running this sort of uncommon distance? I mean, honestly, Tom, just keep it simple. Keep it simple. It's not, it's not that complicated. It's not that, that different, I guess, than any other distance. So, you know, whatever, other than obviously it's, it's scaled differently, right? But any other race, you, know, you probably have a couple of, of waypoints. What I like to do with the athletes I work with is kind of break the, each race down into like three chunks. So there's kind of that inter, that, that that initial chunk, the the first, you know, maybe it's the first 5K of a marathon, maybe it's the first three quarters of a mile to a mile for a 5K. In this case, maybe it's the first two miles for the 15K. Um, but that initial chunk, have a plan for that initial chunk as far as pace to make sure you don't get out too fast, things like that. Then you get to the to the big chunk of the race where you just kind of settle in. Settle in for the next, you know, in this case, 15 K it's 9.3 miles. So that maybe the first two miles is chunk one. Maybe this next, this, this next chunk is five miles. So get to, get to mile seven. So between the end of mile two, the start of mile three to the end of mile seven, nice and easy. You know, you settle in, settle in over those first two miles, find a good pace and just cruise, cruise, keep an eye on your watch, but don't be a slave to it. Just kind of cruise along. And then when you get to that last couple miles, that's when it's time to start tightening the screws slowly, but surely. You know, if, as long as you're feeling good, as long as the legs are, are happy, start ramping that up just a little bit, nothing crazy, no big, huge jumps in pace, but just start dialing it up, dialing it up a little bit at a time, every quarter to a half a mile, take a few seconds off your pace, settle in, take a few seconds off your pace, settle in. And then last but not least, don't start your kick until you can literally see the finish line. You know, this goes back to, uh, Oh, whose question was it now? I, I, uh, Victoria's question about some of the mental side of things. There's, there's mental, um, evidence, scientific evidence of, of being able to see the finish line and, and pushing towards it, you're able to do it. But, uh, if you can't see that finish line, the same amount of distance and you start to push your body tries to conserve a little bit of energy because it doesn't know where the end point is. So you may push hard and then fade before you get to the finish line. So if you can wait until you can literally see the finish line to start your final kick, 
That's that's what you want to do. Don't start your kick until you can see the finish line because it, it will actually help to draw you towards it um, when you can see where the finish line is. So, um, but but like I said, I mean that's that's basically the blueprint that I use for every race that I run. That I that I give to my athletes for every race that they run. We just alter the distances, alter the, the time frames based on the distance of the race. So this is a little bit shorter than a half marathon. So your pace probably going to be a little bit faster than a half marathon pace, but you're still breaking it up into into three or four chunks basically, and just have a target for each chunk. That's going to get you to your ultimately, you know, if all goes well to your goal at the end of the race. So hope that helps Tom. Hope that makes sense. Thank you for both of those questions. Got it stuck them in at the end, but uh, happy to answer them for you. So that is it. And we are officially goodness gracious over, over 70 minutes by the time it's all said and done. Whew. Like I said, I get, I get yapping. And uh, time just time just starts to fly. But hopefully that was useful. Hopefully that was some good information. Thank you to everybody who left a question this month. Um, and like I said at the beginning, if you want to get your questions featured next month, the best way to do it, you can always send me questions other ways, but uh, I can't always guarantee that I remember to add them in. But if you're in the Facebook group, when you see that post that comes up, what are your questions for this month? You put them in the comments and they don't get lost that way. Easy for me to see them. Easy for me to make sure to answer them when we go through the list. So that's the best way to do it. Dizruns.com slash Facebook takes you right to the Facebook page. Click to join. We'll let you in. Uh, and as long as you don't uh, prove to be too much of a, of a douche, we, we do have a, a no douche policy. So be forewarned. If you come in and you're a douche, we're going to boot you boot your right on out. But if you come in, enjoy, you know, engage in the conversations, crack some, some good jokes, some well-intentioned jokes. Um, feel free to troll me at, at no end. And I'm, I'm, I'm game for that. Um, but just be cool. Hey, we'd love to have you part of the group and get your questions answered there. Um, so with that, we'll go ahead and, and wrap this thing up. I'm at Dizruns on Twitter. I'm at Dizruns on Instagram. If you have any thoughts, feedbacks, comments, takeaways, let me know there. Also, just want to let you know, I, I mentioned this in an email recently, but uh, I'm thinking about dusting off the old YouTube channel and doing like a, a, a weekly YouTube video where it's kind of um, basically like this. It's, it's coaching Q&A. Um, but I'll be a bit more selective on the topics. Obviously you can always get any question answered via these Q and A's, but if you want something, if you're interested in that, let me know. I, I think I'm going to do it. Probably going to, going to kick it off maybe in July, if not in July, then in August. Um, so it's coming fairly soon. Um, but, uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that. If you think that might be something that would be interested that you would be interested in, um, I'm probably going to make it a thing. Just have to, just have to get it timed right so that I don't start it and then stop it and start it and stop it. I won't be able to start it and go. Uh, but that's coming soon. Um, but like I said, at Disruns on Twitter, at Disruns on Instagram, let me know what you thought about this episode, questions you might have, ideas, thoughts about doing the, the, the Ask Diz or whatever I'm going to call it for the, the, the YouTube. Um, thoughts and feedback at Disruns. How many times am I going to say this? Disruns at gmail.com is, is the email. And if you want to leave your thoughts, comments, feedback on this episode, got some links in there as well. Links to the Little Things course, links to the books uh, for Victoria or anybody else who wants to, to read some books on some mindset stuff. Um, disruns.com slash 732 is the link to take you back to the show today. Lots of memes and gifs today. Uh, if you didn't see the uh, the little teaser in my Instagram stories yesterday, you can check them out. I like to think there's a pretty good mix in there today. So who knows? You, you can be the judge on that and let me know in the comments down below on the post as well. So that is it for today. Until next time, please be well. Take good care. Thanks for making it through this marathon Q&A episode. Hope it was useful for you. Uh, but until then, be well. Talk soon, guys. Take care.